Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to the Universe Next Door, where today we are taking another deep dive into the actual universes that are next door to us. And of course, I'm referring to worldviews. And we have been exploring just the idea of a worldview. Last week, we touched on the ideas of the facets, you know, the seven makeup portions or pillars of a worldview as they were set forth in the book, the actual book by the same name as our program, The Universe Next Door by James Sire. I'm holding in my hand. Oh, wow. That's a pretty cool cover, isn't it, Nick Shauna? Yes, it is. It looks like uh, an outer space uh, sci-fi novel. But uh, this catalog, it's called a Basic Worldview Catalog. This is the third edition. I think the sixth or fifth edition, something like that, is what's in uh, print right now from InterVarsity Press. Again, Sire, S-I-R-E, if you want to do an Amazon checkout of uh, what's available or your other favorite book uh, source on net, on the internet. The Universe Next Door is a great resource. I've been using it for, well, 25 years as a textbook whenever I teach on the topic of world religions, and it's just fantastic. That's just the word for it. It is beyond awesome. And the idea of a worldview is so important because everything that we say and do and think about, you know, the way we reason about reality, uh, scientific questions, but also everyday questions of morality, what's right and wrong, uh, what is the purpose of life, why am I here, uh, what is my destiny, what happens when I die, is there anything after that, you know, is there judgment or is there just non-existence? You know, the uh, view of my own three older brothers. I have uh, my brothers uh, that are like five years, four years, and two years older than I am. They have different worldviews, at least two of them do. Um, one of them, you know, it would be classified, I think, as a materialist or naturalist, and one of them would be, I think, Unitarian. Uh, very interesting. Uh, and then my, uh, one of my brothers would be actually a fellow Christian. Uh, and we, our worldview would be basically identical. Well, I mean, th this is so important in understanding this area of apologetics because apologetics really is the explanation and then the defense of the Christian worldview in competition with other major worldviews that are out there, as it were, like saying, come in, check me out, I'm the right and the best uh, worldview to live with and to enjoy and to flourish under the understanding of, uh, of, of my worldview. In other words, just think of them as um, people at a fair, uh, you know, welcoming you into their uh, tent and saying, I have the best offering when it comes to a worldview. So we're going to be talking about the weirdest worldview 
I thought, let's start with a splash, right, Nick? Yeah. <laughs> I was talking with Nick about a rock group that uh, I actually have never heard them. I must make my confession. I have never. Is that right? Yeah. No, I've never actually heard uh, Nirvana, I think is the name. Yeah. And uh, Kurt Cobain was their lead singer, uh, tragically committed suicide in the uh, early 1990s. And, um, you know, it was just a, a very, very tragic figure in rock music. But um, I have been doing some research on his lyrics, and he is really uh, quite an odd figure in a sense, but his lyrics were recognized as not just being uh, so much left-wing, in other words, like uh, uh, counterculture, you might use that phrase, you know, trying to break with tradition. Because if you're breaking with tradition and trying to establish a different way to go and say that there's a different purpose, you're at least affirming a purpose. Well, in the end of his life, he was attacking the idea of having a purpose. He was so cutting himself off from the idea of knowledge and value uh, he was weary. He was what, what we might uh, describe as world-weary and, and really kind of set himself up for that self-annihilation in a tragic way. And so um, someone has actually written a, a commentary on the lyrics of uh, this, uh, the late rock star Kurt Cobain saying that nihilism, when f- uh, fully embraced uh, without any compromise, is bound to bear bitter fruit. And so when you go beyond postmodernism, and you may say, well, now what's postmodernism? Postmodernism says we create truth, okay, by our sentences. I, in my own little world, I have my truth, and you have your truth, and we try to get along with each, each of us with our own truth. There is no truth out there, but we have our own created truth. Well, Kurt Cobain, in his latter stages of his rock career, would, would have moved beyond that. He would have moved to what is called nihilism, N-I-H-I-L, and tack on ism. And the, and the Latin word nihil, N-I-H-I-L, means nothing, as in nothing, man, nothing. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I made my point there. Oh, yeah, it's like, like nothingism. Nothingism, yeah. And so, uh, nihil obstat, I think, is a phrase used in the Catholic Church, which is used as like uh, an imprimatur on the front of a book or, or a document. May nothing stand in the way. Nihil obstat. And, and it's good Latin, okay? Well, uh, nihil, nothing. Nihilism, nothingism. You may say, that's a strange worldview. It is. And in a way, it's almost like a denial of a worldview in this sense. A worldview is supposed to have a prime reality. What do we mean by that? A prime reality means a starting point, a fountain from which everything else flows. And so when you have atheism or some kind of scientific worldview, uh, the technical word that is used today for the exaltation of science as the arbiter or the fountain of truth is often called scientism. 
And that's more leaning toward the knowledge, you know, like the, the source of knowledge. How do we know what we know? But let's go ahead and use that term, scientism. And when you get over to the prime reality, what's ultimate real is just molecules. Okay, so that's the stuff of reality. There is no God. There are no spirits. There are no angels. And really, there is no thing such as a soul or a spirit. That's just kind of a, an ephemeral, a magical uh, imagination thing. It doesn't really exist. I mean, your consciousness is like a mirage. You, you, you can see it, sort of, but when you really get down to it, there's nothing there. Now, that's really funny, isn't it? I mean, we're talking, having a conversation. I have no reason to doubt my consciousness. Nick, do you have any reason to doubt your consciousness no, right not now? Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> How could I even doubt it consciously if I'm... That's right. Let's, let's meditate on the non-existence <laughs> of our consciousness. That's like, sawing, that's like sawing the branch that you're sawing, sawing the branch you're sitting on. Yeah. I can hear the crack. Oh, I'm tumbling down. Well, that's the, the self-contradiction or the self-refuting nature of nihilism. Actually, many of the worldviews are self-refuting. That is, they make statements that, that, like a boomerang, come around and hit them on the back of the, neck, of the head uh, when they're not looking. They, they basically, you know, self-annihilate their own position. So let's, let's go back to this view of nihilism. It's a denial of a purpose of, of life, because if God does not exist... And if there is no purpose, then there really is no knowledge. You have no knowledge of prime reality. See, the atheist says, I have science. I have this tool. Wow, I have something. I have a channel of learning. Oh, and even though my brain may be more like a computer, at least made out of meat, you know, made out of neurons and, and blood and, and all kind of chemical circuits at least it's functioning and and the closer i can get to the truth scientific truth that is the better off i am and i i can at least enjoy life and have lots of pleasure and then and then if i die i don't exist anymore but at least i've had a pleasurable life i mean that may be the scientific or naturalistic sometimes it's called naturalism uh, other people will use materialism, scientific materialism, or physicalism. Those are all those isms are pretty much the same. They they are more or less in the same family uh, of a worldview. They inhabit the same terrain. But when you move beyond that and you go and you embrace nihilism, you deny that you can even rely on science. Why? Because science itself becomes corrupted by the sulfuric acid, which has just eaten away at what little you had left in your hands. There's nothing left. So prime reality, according to scientism or naturalism, one of these um, atheistic worldviews, physicalism, at least science has something left. But nihilism says, eh, nothing gone. I mean, nothing left. It's all gone. What about the cosmos? What about, I'm, I'm going through our other six points. Uh, Jim Sire has these um, main checkoff on your like checklist. What is the view of the, of the universe? What is the view of man? How about afterlife? 
And then he goes to knowledge. What's our source of knowledge? What's the view of morality? What's the view of history? What does nihilism have to say? Does it have much to say, Nick, about those six points, do you think? No, it doesn't have much to say about anything. Okay, it shrugs its shoulders and says, we're just here for the ride, and uh, when I die, that's it. I mean, the the end of the um, terrain, you know, <coughs> when it comes to nihilism, is very, very sad. Uh, one of the most um, powerful representations of nihilism in the uh, world of artistry uh, really came from a very short, very, very short um, play called Breath. And this play of Breath, uh, called Breath, is a very, very short play. You know how short it is? How short? 60 seconds. Oh, wow. (laughs) And uh, you know how many uh, actors are in this play? How many? Zero. Oh, sounds like it's worth the money. Yes. Okay, I actually have thought of putting this on at the Trinity College, um, you know, chapel, just to get the students uh, interested in worldviews. But let's, let's try to imagine it. So you're sitting in the Trinity College chapel, and all of a sudden the room is turned dark. It's pitch black, and suddenly the light from one side, a spotlight, is piercing the darkness, and it shines on the stage, and there's a little clump of clothes, looks like little baby clothes, heaped up on the middle of the stage, and you hear the the piercing cry of a baby, like a, a newborn, going, wah, and it lasts for maybe, I don't know, five or ten seconds. And the light suddenly goes from uh, medium strength to brighter and brighter and brighter. And that goes up to about uh, like full strength at 30 seconds. And then the light suddenly reverses in its brightness and it goes dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. And then after about 60 seconds, the light goes off quietly and you hear... This expiration of breath, and that's the end of the play. And you say, what's the point? Why did this uh, playwright write the play in the first place? He was trying to say, that is your life. 60 seconds, it's over, it's gone. Blink and you miss it. And so this is trying to represent in a very powerful, in a very sad, in a very poignant way, the meaninglessness of life if you embrace the nihilistic uh, take on existence. And I'm just going to read just a a quick quote from the front of Jim Sire's chapter on nihilism. He calls it zero-point nihilism. And uh, it's actually a quote from Stephen Crane's um, literary work, The Black Writers and Other Lines. If I should cast off this tattered coat and go free into the mighty sky, if I should find nothing there but a vast, blue, echoless, ignorant, what then? That's a big question. So if I basically die, you know, if I cast off this tattered coat, that means his body, 
and he theoretically goes free into the mighty sky. His soul soars up there, and he finds nothing there. Just a vast blue, echoless ignorant means no mind, nothing above my mind, which doesn't exist anymore since I'm dead. What then? So he's trying to capture what's going on in nihilism. Now, you may say, wait a minute, I thought this word was pronounced nihilism. Okay, um, word to the wise, uh, if you prefer to use the pronunciation nihilism, be my guest. Some people have uh, said that they prefer nihilism, and so I hereby authorize you to maintain, if you prefer, the pronunciation of nihilism. Okay, is my um, um, advisory okay, Nick? Yeah, okay. I think it was great. Okay, very good. Okay, I will continue to use nihilism just because that's my habit and that's my tradition. Okay, so nihilism is more than a feeling. Uh, it's, um, but it is uh, a feeling. It's, uh, it's, it's really, let's say, uh, not a philosophy at all. In a way, it can't even come up to the rank of being a philosophy because a worldview normally is, is attached to some coherent philosophy that says this and that and denies this and that. But in the case of nihilism, it is more like a denial of philosophy. It's a denial of the possibility of knowing anything. It's a denial that there's anything of value. And if it, if it goes down the road based on the absolute denial of everything, in a way, it's, it's like denying the reality of our existence. I mean, how absurd is that? It's, it's absurdity in the extreme. So you might think of nihilism as the negation. That's a good word. What, is it, what does it mean to negate? To negate is to like, cross out. It's to zero out. It's to push into the trash bin to get rid of. Okay, so nihilism is the negation, and, and I'm going to quote Jim Sire, it's the negation of everything, knowledge, ethics, beauty, reality. Them's pretty strong words, Nick. Yeah. It's, in nihilism, no statement has validity. Nothing has meaning. Everything is gratuitous, just is, just there. And so it's no surprise that, you know, feelings of despair and, and anxiety and boredom are just common. They're not just common. They're dominant in this worldview, if you can call it the worldview of nihilism. And, and, it's, and it's such a strange worldview. And that's why I'm, I'm, I'm treating it right here at the beginning of our study of worldviews, because it's, it's something that really became, in a way, avant-garde it became oh that's so cool wow let's 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 look into nihilism maybe that's for us i would say nihilism is one step away from suicide and that's why it is a a just a trick and a beckoning from satan himself it is the most one of the most self-destructive and and ludicrous and intellectually um 
patently absurd worldviews that one could ever even consider because they have no basis for arguing that there is no meaning. To say that there is no meaning, to argue that there is no meaning, entails using argument. To argue that there is no purpose in life means you've just made a statement. Kurt Cobain took to the stage. He wrote lyrics. He expressed pain and frustration. Well, if there was no purpose in expressing this problem to other people, why would he go to the bother of ever expressing himself? Nihilism displays its own Achilles heel. Nihilism shows why it cannot stand on its own two feet. It's like a parasite. It lives off the strength of others' problems and grows like a cancer. I mean, quite quite obviously, you know, the, the best place to see nihilism really is uh, modern art galleries. Um, sometimes, um, the you know, modern art galleries, uh, the American Museum of Modern Art, uh, I've uh, been there. You've Sometimes you've seen these uh, Jackson Pollock paintings that are just dribbles, scatters, splatters of art, uh, or, or paint, rather, on a canvas. And that's what they are to me. They're just uh, splatter art. Um, the nihilistic art of Beckett, I mentioned already the, the play that Samuel Beckett wrote. Um, and um, it's, it's actually less than a minute. Uh, the, the play Breath and the little um, pile of, of uh, clothing on the, on the stage and the light uh, slowly ramps up and then recedes to dimness and then the cry at the end of the, uh, the uh, or exhaled breath at the end is very typical. Douglas Adams, some of you may have heard of him. He is a uh, cosmic science fiction novel writer, and he wrote uh, in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy um, some very, very nihilistic thoughts. I'll just read again just a, a quick quote from Jim Sire's chapter on nihilism. Um, Adams tells of the story of the universe from the point of view of four time travelers who hitchhike back and forth across intergalactic time and space from creation in the Big Bang to the final to the absolutely final destruction of the universe during the course of the history a race of hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings which are actually mice did you know that no yeah they are uh, rather unusual beings these very intelligent mice build a giant computer it's the size of a small city and they tackle the ultimate question of life, the ultimate question of the universe and everything. And this computer, which they call Deep Thought, spends seven and a half million years on the calculation. And this Deep Thought computer worked and worked and worked. And this computer, which was also called Earth, was so large, it was frequently mistaken for a planet especially by the strange ape-like beings who roamed its surface, totally unaware that they were simply part of a gigantic computer program. And the strange final answer is that the entire computation 
is uh, a simple mathematical equation. I won't bother you with the details, but it uh, is a calculation of the, uh, of the times table that a child in fourth grade would be learning, the product of six and nine. And so the entire novel, or actually series of novels that were written around this concept of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is ultimately a manifestation of a search for meaning, which really the search for meaning is a cry out for the meaning. The meaning is found in Christ, the Christ who came, who is the creator of the universe and who provided redemption in his own death on the cross and the salvation he offers as a free, free gift, having conquered that problem that we all have in the sin and rebellion through his resurrection. Check us out at apologetics.org and join us back here at the universe next door. Mm-hmm.